Welcome to episode 86, 87 of the Political Mike Podcast. Episode 87 of the Political Mike Podcast. DeRay McKesson, a Black Lives Matter civil rights activist, organized a demonstration in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, to protest a shooting by a local police officer in response to the killing of Alton Sterling in 2016. The protesters, allegedly at McKesson's direction, occupied the highway in front of the police headquarters. As officers began making arrests to clear the highway, an unknown individual threw a piece of concrete or a similar rock-like object striking respondent, Officer Doe, as he's referred to in the case, in the face. According to the Fifth Circuit, the Fifth Amendment imposes no barrier to tort liability so long as the rock-throwing incident was one of the consequences of tortious activity, which itself was authorized, directed, or ratified, according to this, to the, to the uh, plaintiffs, by Mr. McKesson in violation of his duty of care. The Supreme Court ultimately ruled that the Fifth Circuit's interpretation of state law was too uncertain a premise on which to address the question. And they said that the Louisiana State Court, Supreme Court, had to make a determination of the limits of the Louisiana law. However, the Supreme Court indicated that when violence occurs during an activity protected by the First Amendment, that provision mandates precision of regulation with respect to the grounds that may give rise to damages liability, as well as the person who may be held accountable for those damages. My guest today, has filed a lawsuit similar to the one filed against Mr. DeRay McKesson uh, for incitement to violence, but against former President Donald J. Trump. In his lawsuit, filed in March of 2021, Congressman Eric Swalwell, uh, who was locked down in the House chamber during the January 6th insurrection, uh, claimed that uh, former President Trump, along with his associates, uh, prompted and incited the attack that, was, uh, that unfolded on Congress with their repeated public assertions of voter fraud their encouragement that supporters came to D.C. Uh, uh, on January the 6th and in their speeches that day. Uh, the lawsuit alleges that Trump directly incited the violence at the Capitol that followed and then watched approvingly as the buildings were overrun. The horrific events of January 6th, it says, were a direct and foreseeable consequence of the defendants' unlawful actions. And as such, the defendants are responsible for the injury and destruction that followed. In Trump's own speech, just before the siege began, he told the crowd to show strength and walk down Pennsylvania Avenue and fight like hell. Congressman Swalwell, thank you so much for being part of the political mic today. I want to ask you and start off the conversation by asking you, sir, if you believe that this lawsuit of yours would be the only source of recourse now that the January 6th committee's uh, investigation and the work that they've done uh, over the summer and over the course of this year is coming to a close. Well, thanks, Mike, for having me on. And congratulations on having you know, so many uh, informative guests uh, in the prior 86 episodes. Uh, it's really exciting to see new voices. Uh, you know, yes, the goal here is accountability, uh, first and foremost, uh, accountability for what President Trump did on January 6th and the weeks leading up to January 6th. And we do believe by seeking accountability, we will also be able to achieve something that January 6th committee has not been able to achieve, uh, which is, you know, to get past many of the roadblocks uh, that uh, Donald Trump and other witnesses in the investigation have put up when they've asserted executive privilege and other privileges uh, that are much harder to overcome if you're Congress and seeking the information than if you were a private citizen uh, plaintiff like myself uh, seeking the information. And, and that's the capacity that I filed uh, that lawsuit. So, uh, yes, uh, first and foremost, accountability, but also uh, more and more information and transparency about you know what the president did and, and knew on January 6th, I believe, will be uh, the, the fruits of this lawsuit. 
And so in, in that same vein, uh, Congressman Swalwell, uh, I know one of the, you know, I had the, the privilege of being a part of the civil rights clinic for Howard University School of Law. And we wrote an amicus brief where we were trying to make um, the, the connection between the Fifth Circuit interpretation of what would constitute incitement and other districts uh, interpretation of what constitutes incitement and what rises to that level. Um, do you think that there's a high likelihood that this would come out of the realm of just state law um, or DC law and, and really become a constitutional issue that the court can finally address and determine whether or not that that barrier was a, was was finally met yeah. in terms of crossing that threshold from incitement to violence. That's right. And, and and this is not only about what the president said on January 6th, although, you know, he did have inciting uh, rhetoric, you know, telling the, the crowd to fight like hell and that he would uh, go with them to the Capitol, creating kind of a permissive environment that if the president's going to go, then uh, of course I could go, even though there was not a permit for the crowd to move from the ellipse near the White House to the Capitol. But the president saying that he's going, you know, again, gives license, I think, in the minds of ordinary people to believe that they can go uh, with him. Uh, but it's what the president did in, in the weeks leading up to January 6th, the constant, you know, rhetoric uh, of saying that January 6th is going to be wild, uh, as well as, you know, having knowledge, it looks like that there was going to be violence uh, that day. And, and we want to further discover what information the president had about the, no about the knowledge of violence, right? Because if you are being briefed by your national security team that there's going to be uh, violence on January 6th or violent groups are going to the Capitol on January 6th and you persist, again, now you have skin in the game because your knowledge suggests that you chose uh, to fire the crowd up anyway, knowing uh, what kind of powder keg environment uh, they were going into. Uh, and you still called, you know, them to act. And so I, I think it can't just be looked at as far as what he said on January 6th, but the totality of the circumstances. Uh, and I, I do believe ultimately when a, a trier of fact, and the, the jury has to decide this, uh, that they would conclude that he assembled the mob, he aimed the mob, and ultimately with his words uh, incited the mob. So for those who are paying attention to, to the ongoing uh, legal saga, um, where are we now with the lawsuit for those who are? Yeah, you know, the hard, most legal experts have told me the hardest hurdle for me to clear is the president's motion to dismiss based on absolute immunity. Uh, basically, the claim that because he's the president, he's immune from any acts that he takes while in office. Well, we survived that claim in the district court. So in the, the federal court, uh, the federal district court of Washington, D.C., Judge Mehta wrote a very thoughtful 93-page opinion saying that there are boundaries to absolute immunity, that the president went outside those boundaries with his conduct on January 6th. Now, uh, to go into the weeds, and I know that's where you live and that's where this podcast uh, operates uh, because your viewers are so uh, well-informed on legal issues, there's what's called a direct interlocutory appeal on the issue of immunity. Now, typically in civil litigation, if the district court judge rules on an issue like immunity, you would go, if the ruling's in favor of the plaintiff, you would just go to discovery. So you'd go to depositions and discovery where the parties are asking each other you know, for information and, and interviews. However, absolute immunity is one of the few issues in the law where you can receive an interlocutory appeal, meaning that you can suspend depositions, discovery, trial, and go up to the next court of appeal to have that issue resolved. So 
Last week, we were in front of the Court of Appeals, the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, on the strict issue, the discrete issue of absolute immunity. Typically, the Court of Appeals takes 60 to 90 days before they hand down an opinion. Either party can ask for uh, a full panel, you know, on banc uh, for the, you know, the full panel to meet rather than just the three who met for this case. Uh, that could be granted or rejected. And then whatever happens after that, it could be appealed by either party to the Supreme Court. And of course, it's up to the Supreme Court. They don't have to take the case. Thousands of cases are appealed to the Supreme Court. Uh, you know, 90-ish percent are rejected. So uh, we could uh, see the end of it with this opinion. Uh, you know, if, it, if it's in our favor and the court doesn't take it up, uh, you know, on a, the Supreme Court doesn't take it up on appeal, or we could just be at another uh, appellate ladder that uh, we have to climb. So we will have more clarity, I think, in the next, you know, 60 days or so. So, Congressman Swalwell, I do want to pivot and ask you about the uh, legislative work uh, that Congress is doing as we're in this lame duck period and we're transitioning and getting ready for the new session of Congress to begin in January. Um, in your view, can the Democratic caucus uh, or does the Democratic caucus have any plans of identifying any swing district or Biden district uh, Republicans with whom they can work on some major issues to form some semblance of a governing coalition in the House. I know that, um, for instance, uh, codifying Roe versus Wade uh, was a promise that the Democrats have made. Uh, of course, that was on the condition that they keep the majority, but the Republicans want only a slim majority. Is that something that you can see or, or a, an assault weapons ban? Uh, something yeah, I, I know they call this the lame duck. It feels like a live duck because uh, so much is happening right now uh, that is so pivotal. You know, we're, we're gonna fund the government hopefully for, uh, you know, at least uh, a year. Uh, you know, I think the Electoral Count Act is going to be reformed. Uh, we're going to get a big aid package for Ukraine to keep them in the fight. So, you know, typically a lame duck, not much is happening. Uh, but right now uh, it's very, very active. I think it's going to take us all the way up to Christmas and perhaps, uh, you know, up to the new year. Uh, but the bigger question uh, that you pointed out is in the new Congress, Republican Congress, five vote majority that Kevin McCarthy has, you know, what are we able to get done and, and what Republicans are able to uh, work with us. Well, I believe the majority of the Republican conference supports keeping the government open, supports extending the debt limit, and supports funding Ukraine. Uh, but it's going to be a test of leadership for whoever the speaker is, if they're going to be willing to put those issues up for votes and rely upon Democratic votes to get them over the goal line, or if they're going to allow you know the crazies, uh, the Freedom Caucus, uh, the likes of Matt Gates and Lauren Boebert and Marjorie Taylor Greene, will they be driving the bus here? Uh, and, and so typically in the past, responsible speakers of the House like John Boehner and Paul Ryan relied upon Democratic votes to get over the goal line, to keep the government open and extend the debt limit. Will the next Speaker of the House do that for the sake of the country, for the sake of the economy, for the sake of people who rely on the government? That is still yet to be seen. But I do know that the majority of Republicans support all three of those issues. It's really going to be a test of one person's leadership and how much they're willing to do things for the good of the country or for the good of their own speakership. And, and in that, you know, in alignment with what you said, Congressman, uh, Representative McCarthy has seemed to just do whatever it takes to ensure that he does get the, the amount of votes he needs to, to get the speakership. Um, do you think it's possible, however, being that the Republicans are so fractured? Um, you mentioned some of the most fringe uh, individuals who have become um, celebrities in their own right among folks who like that kind of stuff. But do you believe that it's possible for someone like Hakeem Jeffries 
who was just elected the Democratic leader uh, to become Speaker of the House, being that Republicans um, are so divided amongst themselves. I also believe that you know the next two years will be defined as whether the Republicans kept their promise to Americans, you know, what they ran on in 2022, which was to address issues like inflation. Inflation's real. It's hurting everyday Americans. And will Republicans offer solutions? Or is the next two years going to be defined by Hunter Biden's laptop, defunding the FBI, going after the special counsel investigation into Donald Trump, pandering to the grievances over the border without any solutions? And if that's the case, then yes, I, I believe you will very uh, swiftly see uh, a Speaker Jeffries sworn in in you know 2025. Uh, so the Republicans, you know, they they have an opportunity uh, to really rise to the occasion and deliver on what they promised uh, in the midterms. But it looks more and more like they're going to be the largest law firm in Washington D.C. with just one client, and that's Donald Trump. And then they're going to litigate all of his grievances uh, that will help only Donald Trump and not a single American who needs help, you know, on the cost of gas and groceries. Uh, and, and wants, you know, safety in their communities and wants to see America strong uh, abroad and, and democracy upheld in Ukraine and Taiwan and, and everywhere else. It looks like those issues are going to be pushed aside uh, as well as, as you alluded to earlier, for our kids to be safe in their schools and, and free from gun violence, uh, from assault weapons. Those issues, it looks like, will be secondary uh, to the grievances of Donald Trump. So do you think that the American public will become so disillusioned with all of these investigations, uh, you know, investigating not just uh, Hunter Biden, but even Dr. Fauci, who dedicated almost 40 years of his life to public service and, you know, launching an investigation on the January 6th committee itself and all these other, you know, things would cause the public to be so disillusioned um, that the Democrats would now find themselves in an advantage legislatively um, in 2024. You know, I would say... The Republicans in their investigations would be like being in a NBA all-star game slam dunk contest and having to follow Michael Jordan, right? Because for the last two years, we just put on the most professional, cerebral, responsible congressional hearing that people have seen uh, in decades with the January 6th uh, committee. Uh, the work that they did in the reliance upon almost entirely Republican witnesses, uh, you know, struck through uh, with the American people. And at the ballot box, uh, I, I think a part of the result, uh, you know, where the red wave did not occur was because the American people rejected crazy. And they saw what crazy looked like after all of those hearings. And, you know, it gave them a contrast. So if the Republicans want to follow that act, if they want to follow the Michael Jordan, you know, slam dunk, uh, they're going to have to also rise to the occasion. I, I think it's going to be a spectacular failure, though. I think it's going to look like the chaos that the voters rejected. And, and again, I think as you look at the 2024 election, uh, the voters in even a more sharp way than in, in 22 will have to decide between chaos and competency. So the last question I want to ask before I let you go, Congressman, is Will the, Do you believe that the House Judiciary Committee, under Republican control, is capable of taking the threat of foreign interference in our elections? Uh, the most recent one will be 2024, but you know beyond 2024, do you think that they'll be able to take that threat seriously? You know, the, you know, the House Judiciary Republicans, uh, you know, they benefit from foreign interference. They benefit from the chaos that Russia has caused. 
they are, you know, Putin curious, a, a Putin block, if you will, who has rooted for Vladimir Putin in this conflict with Ukraine, who failed to call Putin out when he interfered in the 2016 and, and subsequent elections. And, and so, no, we can't count on them, but we can count on, I believe, the Biden administration uh, who oversaw the 2022 elections uh, and made sure that there was no significant foreign interference. And so I hope that, you know, they remain as vigilant uh, as they have been uh, to, to seek it out, to, uh, you know, stem the tide where it may come and call it out. Uh, but I, I expect that we should have a foreign interference free election going forward, you know, as long as the Biden administration remains, you know, kind of uh, on the watch uh, for it as they have in the last election. Well, Congressman Eric Swalwell, thank you so much. And I also wanted to mention your book was, you know, outstanding. I loved it. Uh, Endgame Inside the Impeachment of uh, President Donald J. Trump. It, it gives a Thanks, account of what you went through in, in the impeachment process uh, over that phone call, infamous phone call with Zelensky. Uh, thank you so much for what you political, Mike, uh, Congressman. Thank you so much for dedicating. With that being said, I'm going to go ahead and conclude episode 87, episode 87 of the Political Mike podcast. Thank you all for tuning in.